The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grampiche is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. I love the little Dr. Doreen theme music. It's very, it's very jaunty. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. I'm Shannon Penrod. You are watching Autism Live, and we call this Ask Dr. Doreen on Wednesdays, and Dr. Doreen is here. We're live. Today's date is Wednesday, the 21st of July, 2021. Can't even believe we're at that portion of the program. Uh, like, where does the time go? But we're here, and we're going to be live for the next hour. You have this rare opportunity that you can write in your questions right now for Dr. Grampiche. She's a true expert in the field of autism, having worked in this field for over 40 years. I just, that doesn't even roll trippingly off the tongue uh, and it doesn't seem believable, uh, but it's true. And she was not uh, doing that in her diapers, but you know, good, good skincare does everything you guys and working with, I think work, let's start this rumor. Working with individuals on the autism spectrum helps keep you looking young there. Absolutely. Uh, one of the many benefits of working with individuals on the spectrum. But here's what I most especially want you to know about Dr. Grampiche. She's a true champion for people who are on the autism spectrum of all ages and all abilities, um, advocating for them in many different ways. She's the founder of the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, the founder of the amazing charity Autism Care Today, and continues to be a really important pivotal person in the field of autism, helping people who treat individuals with autism to look at them as whole people. Recently um, started a whole initiative for making sure that ABA practitioners are trained in understanding the medical aspects of autism. So uh, she also is a huge advocate for families and she's just a remarkable person. So we're thrilled that she's here. She's been helping individuals on the spectrum um, for ages early from babies up through senior citizens um, in her life. So we're thrilled that she's here and donates this time so that she can help you to answer some of the questions that you guys have. The, the, we're now open for questions. We are live right now on many different platforms, but the big ones that I want to share with you that are the easiest to interact with are Facebook Live, YouTube, and Twitter. If you're on any of those platforms right now, you can be watching us live, sending in your question, writing your question in right now, and we can say hello to you so that you can see that in fact that really works, but you can also write in your question. When you do write in a question, we encourage you to be as specific as possible. 
You must understand that there is no expert in any field that can give individual specific advice in this platform. So it is not meant to be individual specific advice, but you will see, and many have written in thanking Dr. Doreen for her inspiration, that um, what you get to do is to hear her thoughts on the subject that you're talking about, and she will help you to understand more about it and think about it in a way that maybe you didn't before, so that when you do go to an expert who has literal eyes on the subject that you will have better questions to ask and be better informed of what to look for to get the, the care and treatment that you need. We always say on this show that this entire show is meant to provide information and inspiration to the entire larger autism community. Of course, that begins the beating heart of our community are individuals who are themselves on the autism spectrum and have a qualified diagnosis. They are the beating heart of everything that we do. Um, but we also include in that community absolutely everyone who loves those individuals. That is, uh, you know, what I when I say the larger autism community, that, that includes spouses and boyfriends and girlfriends and brothers and sisters and mothers and uncles and so on and so forth. So we encourage um, all of you to be here. We know that it's not one size fits all and we want to help you to get to the progress that you so richly deserve. Yes. Um, so we are, we are noticing that nobody has written in and said hello. Oh, there we go. It is working. Okay. Uh, Joanne has written in, um, uh, and it looks like we're getting the second comment. So we might've missed the first comment that you had, Joanne, our, our chat might've been hampered for a second. Um, so so I'll just say hello during, as yeah. we're working on that. Have I not let you speak yet? How horrible <laughs> am I? No, 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 it's quite all right. Hello, Dr. I just, I just want to say hello to, to all of our viewers. And also, um, as you were talking, Shannon, it occurred to me that we get some really wonderful questions on this show. And um, you and Trayvon have done this amazing job of um putting them all, all in kind of a library system um, so that later on people can look up uh, these types of questions and get their answers on, on, I believe, YouTube, right? And that, I think, is such a valuable thing because I love the questions, but I always think how they will help uh, other parents later on. Yes. And so let's talk for just a second about where people can find that. If you go, we're, we're on many sites. I didn't really uh, say all that. And yet I still didn't let you talk. I talked about other things, yeah. but so we're, we're live on the platforms that I talked about. We're live in a bunch of other places. We, um, we have our archive videos are on our YouTube channel. We're a, a free podcast that you can download anywhere you get your podcast. We are the number one rated autism podcast worldwide. Thanks to all of you. But we also have a homepage and on our homepage, autism-live.com. When you go there, there's many different ways that we, we surveyed people and said, how do you search for information and found that people search in lots of different ways. So for instance, if you want to do what Dr. Grampuche was talking about, which is find all the questions that have been asked over the years of Dr. Doreen, uh, at the very top of the page, it says uh, topics. 
And if you click on that, there's a drop down menu and you can click on Dr. Doreen. It's the only one that's there. Our intention is to also to do this for our Temple Grandin videos. Um, we just haven't launched it yet. But if you click on the Ask Dr. Doreen, you can go in and um, you can search by topic. Um, you, there's an alphabet thing and you can push which alphabet. So the example I always use is toilet training. You click on T, you go to toilet training, you put that in and, and then what it'll show you is a list of questions that have been asked about toilet training because, you know, somebody's going to ask about how do I toilet train a three-year-old and somebody's going to ask, how do I help a 15 year old who's regressed and been potty trained 10 years ago? Right. So right. you click on the question that is most fitting of what you want answered. And it takes you directly to that show, that moment when Dr. Grant Pichet answered that question. So that's a really cool thing. Um, totally free to all of you. And that is available on our website, autism-live.com. If you just want to look at all the Ask Dr. Doreen's, there's a playlist across the top. There, The playlists that we think are the most interesting to you right now, um, you can click on Dr any of the pictures of Dr. Doreen, it'll take you to ask Dr. Doreen so that you can look at videos. Uh, and we have other playlists for everything, everything from, you know, cooking to um, everything. Toys. We do toys. We do a lot of things with toys. So, so thrilled that you guys are here. I want to, uh, so uh, Joanne has written in and I want to honor that um, and encourage all of you to be writing in right now on whatever platform that you're in. Uh, but I feel like I missed part of her question, but she's saying that her teenager has had two catatonic events in the last three years. And, and she wants to know if this is uh, a medical problem or medication related, Dr. Doreen? Yeah. Hi, John. So um, it could be a uh, medication related. It could be not medication related. Catatonia, which for the rest of our viewers is kind of when the individual freezes, They're, they don't move for an extended period of time. And it is uh, due to irregularities in either dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, or GABA or glutamine, glutamate. So I don't know, if, you know, if your child has been receiving medications to, let's say, uh, try to control uh, uh, dopamine, then it is possible that uh, the medication might have caused the catatonia. Um, if your child is not on any kind of medication that was trying to control either dopamine or GABA, for instance, or glutamate, then uh, it's more likely a medical issue that now needs to be controlled with medication. But it is very serious, and you should definitely get in touch with a neurologist so that you can try to uh, get it under control. Wonderful. Okay. And... Uh... I so appreciate you writing in about that because I think that's, a, as Dr. Grampuche said, that's a really important thing. We're saying hi to Jason from Colorado. And I'll tell you, one of the things I love is when you guys write in like Jason and say where you're watching. Because I know a lot of times we have people who are watching internationally. I'm geographically challenged. It piques my interest to know like where you guys are watching from. We had a question that came in just before the show started, Dr. Grampuche, that they wrote in and said, good morning. And, and this, this kills me. They said, my 13-year-old son uses a lot of negative self-talk. And then they say, dot, 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 I'm terrible at this. I failed. I'm the worst one, et cetera. 
we've uh, that these are the things that he says. Um, we tried ignoring it because I think he does it for attention, but he still says negative statements about himself all the time. I actually think he likes to say them. What else can we do? Okay. What a great question. And so, so very, very important. And I love the way that the parent has asked this, uh, Shannon, because it's really clear that the parent is starting to see that perhaps the child enjoys making these statements. So that's a different aspect of the content of the statement, and we kind of need to deal with both. Mm-hmm. So let's first talk about the content and what the child is saying. And this is really important because a lot of our kids develop self-esteem issues. And it's good because it's a it indicates that they're high-functioning enough to... Uh, look around and realize that certain things are harder for them or that they just don't understand certain things the way that others do. Um, I've had so many children over the years tell me, um, I just don't really understand what this whole social thing is about. Like, why do people like to socialize? Uh, That kind of stuff. And they feel like left out and they start to doubt themselves and wonder if there's something wrong with them. Uh, I've had other children who are, you know, typically developing kids will also develop these types of issues if they're weak on, let's say, math. Uh, I know lots of children who will say something like, I'm just dumb when it comes to math. Those types of things are just, there's no good that can come out of that, right? So we absolutely want to do a couple of different things. One is, we, and this is really important because the parents wrote that they think the child is actually enjoying, maybe starting to enjoy saying these things. That immediately makes me feel like the child is getting attention when they say these statements. So now anything that gets attention will increase. Any behavior that is followed by a reinforcer will increase. Okay, that's how we define reinforcers. So whether the attention is positive or negative, it doesn't matter. It's attention and that the behavior that was before it will increase. So to begin with, you do not want to reward when your child says those types of statements, which means no attention. Do not give attention when the child says negative statements. This is very hard because as parents, you know, it breaks your heart and you want to immediately get in there and tell the child, oh, no, you're not dumb. You're not this. You're very special. You can understand. And that's exactly what you don't want to do. You do not want to do that. It's very, you know, counterintuitive, right? Because it's just as a parent, you just want to love on them when they say things like that. So the first thing is you don't want to give attention when the child says those things. Now, What you do want to do is you want to give attention for self-love, for things that are very good. So we need to give the child areas of strength. We need to highlight those areas of strength so that you as the parent have the opportunity to reward and say, wow, you are amazing at those types of things, right? Now, keep in mind, a lot of our kids have a lot of areas of strength that we just either don't notice or we're so busy trying to get the child to fit in that we don't develop and support those areas. But a lot of my kids are incredible 
in art. They're amazing in music. Uh, they have an unbelievable knowledge of uh, some area like geography or history or something that everybody or they they have incredible collections of stamps and coins and things that they'd like to talk about and there's a lot of stuff like that that you it is totally appropriate to talk about and to tell the child you are so good at this this and this you do an amazing job so here the goal is to give the child something that they can build their own self-esteem on, that they can feel good about. And please think out of the box because there could it could be a variety of things, right? Just it, it, it could be cooking, it could be computer, it could be, you know, crafts, it could be whatever it is. But you want to make sure the child develops some skill that they feel very competent in. And that when they engage in that, you give them all the attention in the world and you tell them how amazing you are. When they're self-negative self-talking, you completely do not attend, maybe even walk out of the room. And you have to tell everyone because you don't want to attend to the negative stuff, but you do want to attend to positive self-talk. Yeah, I think we all have that friend that's on Facebook that posts things and says, you know, I'm so upset and, you know, and this happened and whatever, that they have that running diary. And then we all glom on and we go, oh, I'm so sorry. And we just pile the attention on. And, but they do this every day of the week. And, and we see that it becomes the way they get affirmed. And that's really what I hear you saying is that we don't want our kids to turn into that. That the only way they get that affirmation is by saying, the only time people say, you're great is when I say I'm not great. Is that that basically it in a nutshell? Exactly. I mean, it's that's exactly very well said, Shannon. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I also want to say that one of the things that I wished I had known before and done better, and it probably somebody told me to do this, but I, we were always working very hard on, on uh, helping my son to find positive st self statements for himself and us languaging it. And it didn't occur to me that when friends and family would say to me, well, I don't really know how to connect with him. And I don't really know, like, what can I do to help you that I could also assign this to them? That to say, you know, like, can you look at his artwork and, and tell him like how you feel about it and how great it is. It, it's happened naturally, but I, I was just noticing the, uh, this the other day and said this to him, in fact, that um, he's getting a lot of praise right now because he's working as a camp counselor. We, we love the folks over at the Ed Asner Family Center. And he's a camp counselor at Camp Ed and he comes home walking on water every day because yeah. he gets, he hears other people telling him, oh, you did so, like you were so great with, with this client, you were so great with this. And, and I said to him, I said, oh gosh, that's so, because I tell you all the time that you're amazing, but after a while you decided, well, you're my mom, of course you would say that. And, and it's almost like the coins in the bank, my coin only counts for one coin, but when somebody other than me says that he's amazing, it's like 32 coins. Yeah. So we can assign that to family members and say, you know, praise them for the things not contrived, you know, like see, you know, see what they do that's wonderful and praise them. Um, well, and also, that's a really good point, Shannon, because after a while, like, you know, the, the rewards from just mom lose uh, their reward value, right? 
So it's a really good point to have others engaged in this activity. And I, I just want to say it's okay if it's contrived in the beginning because it has to be, you have to find areas that maybe the child didn't realize or you didn't realize are areas that should be applauded. And, uh, you know, we just take them for granted a lot of the time. And we go so, right back to my fat boy slim that I always yeah. say our ABA theme song was fat boy slim, uh, praise, uh, and the words are, I have to praise him like I should. And yeah. I always say, I'm pretty sure fat boy slim was talking about something other than ABA, but it is the perfect ABA song. And when things aren't going well, you put that song on, you dance to it and you remember that, oh, praise is the thing that helps to make things work towards being better. Absolutely. Uh, love, love me some fat boy slim. Uh, so there we go. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Jason wrote in and he would like to know what is a good medication for anxiety? Uh, while you were talking about how people are good at art and music, he wrote and told us that he is, but he is also trying to get away from medications and trying THC with CBD. He says, but I don't want to present, prevent myself from getting a good job either. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and he goes on to note that it's unfortunate that social media isn't helping with self-esteem. I totally agree. Uh, and it is better to have a face-to-face -face conversation, which still isn't possible for a lot of people in a lot of areas of the world. Yeah. Um, COVID has, has helped in some ways, but not in this area. It is not yeah. helpful. So talk to us about medications for anxiety, Dr. Grant. Shea. Yeah, and, and this is a really important subject because, Shannon, honestly, I think Anxiety is probably one of the highest diagnosed issues in the country. And it's not just individuals on the spectrum. I actually have an entire uh, talk that I do about uh, anxiety for individuals who are on the spectrum because it is so much more likely that they would have anxiety um, because of you know, their sensory sensitivities or their inability to understand uh, what's going on around them or their inability to communicate as fast as others or their inability to fit into social, all of that will lead to heightened anxiety. But even, even all of that aside, even with individuals who are, who are you know, neurotypical and, and doing very well, anxiety is a really common, common issue for a lot of people. And there are uh, three different ways that you can deal with anxiety. So, well, four actually, uh, if you wanna throw in uh, uh, CBD, for instance. I don't really recommend THC because THC will actually tend to make people paranoid. And paranoia will increase anxiety. CBD might work for some people, but as you said, it's not, it's not the first route that I would suggest. There's a lot of other options you have. So uh, first of all, let's just quickly touch on uh, the uh, behavioral path, because that is absolutely one of the things that uh, is a lot of people deal with anxiety through cognitive behavioral interventions. Um, it's important to identify and, and you want to work with a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, a psychologist, but the, what they do is they identify kind of what kind of anxiety, what are the things that lead to your anxiety? I see that Jason wrote in that he's very sensitive to noise. 
that's a great example. It's a specific environmental factor that might lead to anxiety. So that's great because then you, what you do is you systematically desensitize yourself to it through a series of steps. So you learn, for instance, to do uh, relaxation exercises, meditation, and then you progressively pair that meditation and relaxation with higher and higher noise levels or closer and closer noise to the noise that really bothers you. So as an example, you'd first practice a lot of meditation and relaxation, which these days you can get online, um, on your phone even. There are apps for meditation. There are apps for relaxation exercises, which are really, really good. Um, I would suggest that you try to find an area in your house that is calming, maybe build, make an area for yourself that is calming, like a, um, one of these giant bean bags and have your noise canceling headphones in that area where you can just go relax, put your headphones on and listen to music that relaxes you. Um, that might be your relaxation or the way that you can work on reducing your heart rate and calming down. Then what you do is you will uh, list for yourself a series of uh, anxiety-provoking situations, and then you put them in order of the least to the most. So let's say noise is something that bothers you. So the highest anxiety-provoking would be uh, a certain type of noise that is, let's say, uh, continual and it bothers you, right? And, and it's loud. Um, and the least anxiety provoking would be maybe a minute or a second of that noise or other noises, perhaps. So you make kind of a hierarchy, <clears throat> excuse me, of things that are anxiety provoking, but you put them in order of least to most. And then you start to pair, starting with the least, you start to pair them with that relaxation. So I see Jason wrote in like dog barking is one. I don't know where that would fall in the hierarchy, but if it was one of the, the lower anxiety provoking things, you start there and you just make sure that you can maybe record it and play it, play dog barking um, while you're in the relaxation zone and relaxing, meditating, etc. And you just do that for a while. You do it for as long as it takes so that dog barking no longer makes you anxious, okay? And then you go to the next level, you do the same thing, and then you go to the next level. This is called systematic desensitization. It's a kind of a behavioral, cognitive behavioral technique that lets you calm down. Now, in terms of other uh, avenues, medication in particular, there are basically two types of medications. One are the medications that deal with acute anxiety. So like you are having a panic attack right now and you need something to just calm you down. Otherwise you're completely out of control and can't handle it. That would be a benzodiazepine. I don't really recommend those medications. They are for situations where you feel very out of control. Um, and they're very, very helpful. Let's believe me, they're extremely helpful, but they're also very easy to get addicted to. Things like Xanax, for instance. These are very helpful medications because they will take you from an extremely heightened state to a calm state within about 20 minutes. 
but they are very easy to get addicted to. The other type of medication, which I do recommend for a lot of people, are <clears throat> antidepressants. And, then, and people don't realize that the medication for anxiety is the same as the medication for depression. Because depression and anxiety are basically two sides of the same coin, um, and they're treated the same. So uh, these medications, which are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or reuptake inhibitors that deal with both serotonin and norepinephrine, these are really good medications, and they're not going to uh, cause a extreme change in your behavior. But over time, about three weeks, uh, they start to just get you to a, to a level where things like, let's say, a sudden dog bark is not going to make you startled so much. It, the, they basically calm you a little bit and they kind of take the edge off of all the different stimuli in your environment um, so that it becomes a lot easier to, to manage those things. I do think that, um, and I see that uh, Jason is writing that he is already on a medication, but I think that it would be really important to, to if you're still experiencing anxiety, to sit with your physician and tell them that because sometimes even if we're on a medication for anxiety, it's just not enough. And there are additional things you can do, either additional or different medications that will suddenly make it work a lot better for you. Or as you know, most research always shows, the combined method of doing a cognitive behavioral technique and being on medication always is the most effective. So I would talk to your physician, probably a uh, psychiatrist maybe, and or a neurologist and uh, chat with them and tell them all of your ongoing issues and tell them that the medication that you're on is perhaps not enough and ask them to help you with either other medications or uh, behavioral techniques that might help you. Yeah, and I, I just wanna throw in that I've done cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, you know, it was so helpful to me. So, so, so very helpful to me. So, and I love that Jason has said that he's gonna try the things that you uh, recommended. Uh, and we want to hear back from you, Jason, and know how, how it ended up for you. Uh, I want to switch to a question that came in during the week uh, that a caregiver wrote in. They said, my daughter is on the spectrum. She's almost seven, and I cannot get her to try new foods without a complete meltdown. She will scream, cry, and throw the food. If I do get her to try something new, she'll automatically gag and spit it out. She only eats crunchy textures, chips, dry cereal, crackers, pretzels and other sugary junk foods. How can I get her to try new things? I've taken her to the doctors more than once and that did nothing. The doctor wanted her to try new foods uh, with her three, the same thing I tried, but charged almost $200 to do it each time. So I canceled. Any advice would be appreciated. Yeah. So uh, feeding therapy is actually one of the things that you most behavior analysts or BCBAs are trained to do. And it's a pretty simple process. It's, um, it, it's I mean, initially you think, oh gosh, this is such a complicated thing, but it really isn't. What, what, the way that it works, and I can talk about this, but 
Um, I don't suggest that you try it on your on your own. I think that you should uh, definitely try to get a professional behavior analyst to help you with this because there's a, a lot of steps. And Shannon, we might, I don't know if we have other shows that go through the process and talk about the process, yeah. but, uh, and I have other presentations that I've done on this and, and we can certainly write about it, but here's, here's a summary, I guess, of how it goes. You, um, first you have to identify if, um, what is making the child selective. In other words, is it the, the texture of the food? Um, sometimes children are uh, very, very uh, um, adamant that they want to have something crunchy and they won't touch things that are not crunchy or that are like more mushy. Um, and hey, we want our kids to have a broad array of things. Sometimes it's taste. So, you know, kids, like all kids, will prefer sweet to, let's say, sour um, or savory. And so we want to have, we want to make sure our kids have a broad diet. So what you do is you then list all the things that the child loves, right? And those are the things that will now become the child's reinforcer. Um, and you write uh, the things that you really want to start putting into the child's uh, diet. So let's just say the child loves chips, but hates to have carrots, just as an example, right? So what you then start doing is you will allow the child to have chips, but you will require the child to have uh, a very, very small amount of a carrot first. So you basically will require the child to have, let's say, a, you know, a tiny morsel, like a quarter of a teaspoon size of a carrot followed by a bag of chips, right? And then you gradually will alter this. So now the child has to have, uh, you know, a full teaspoon of carrots um, versus, and then they can have chips. And then you want to do maybe, you know, two or three teaspoons of carrots and then they can have chips. And so you gradually increase the one that the child didn't want. That's your target. You're trying to increase that. And you gradually reduce the reinforcer, the chips, but you don't re reduce the reinforcer to the point that it doesn't have meaning anymore. Um, so you always want to really reward the child for, for uh, what they're trying to do, right? Um, and if the child, you get to a balance where the child is willing now to take in some other things like carrots and peas and beans and so on. And remember, the child will uh, object. Obviously, all kids will object. If, you're, if any typically developing child uh, was to be given ice cream all the time, I promise you they would object when you try to give them vegetables. It's just a normal thing, right? But don't worry about that. Just work through it. No child is going to reject a tiny morsel of something um, because they know that they're trading it for a lot of the other thing they want. As long as they know that in order to get the one they like, they have to have a small amount of something they don't like, they'll go for it. But if you freely 
give them access to the stuff that they like, like chips all the time, and you don't require or ask the child to try something else, then yeah, it's going to be, they're just going to choose the thing they like. It's not going to happen. And don't let it scare you if the child initially throws a tantrum or has uh, objects to the fact that you're asking them to have a piece of carrot. Don't worry about that. That's a very typical thing. There's a preference there, right? The child prefers to have the other object, which is totally fine. We all have preferences in food, but we kind of uh, know that it's not good for us in the long run to just have, let's say, sugar. My preference, Shannon, is bread, right? I mean, I could eat bread all day long, but hey, I can't because the gluten in bread bothers me and it also is high calorie and makes me fat, so I can't. So I will occasionally have bread, but I will also make sure that I have salad and all these other things that I don't like as much. And you just have to get to that point where the child realizes that they can have a certain amount of the thing they want, but they have to have all these other things. Now, it's not as easy as I said, what we do when we do feeding therapy is a whole bunch of other stuff too, which is why I really want you to work with a professional who's trained in feeding. Um, For example, uh, we might set up a TV in front of the child and turn the TV on, right? And the child is watching. And when we offer them the carrot and the child rejects the carrot, we might turn the TV off. And so now the child realizes, oh, I better have that carrot because I want the TV on as well, right? So we do, we put a ton of reinforcers in the child's environment and they all go away if the child doesn't take this tiny morsel of the item we're trying to give them. And again, it's not just like when I talk about carrots, that's a great example because sometimes kids can't chew things that are hard. And in that case, we would start with something very mushy and we would move it up. There's it's a, a lot of shaping goes into feeding and I don't want you to try it alone. Uh, because all of those things have to be taken into consideration so that it's done correctly. Um, And it's not something you need to fear. A lot of kids will get through this. Now, another very quick, important thing that I don't want to forget to tell you is please consult with a dietitian or a nutritionist or your physician before you do this. Sometimes our kids are not eating things that they're allergic to. They learn not to eat the things that disturb them. So first you wanna make sure that the item you're teaching your child to eat is okay for them to eat. So first step, make sure that the things you wanna teach them are okay. Second, you wanna find a professional who can work on feeding therapy with you. And believe me, it is not that hard as soon as you get going the child actually enjoys the experience and um, becomes proud of themselves for being able to join others wonderful and kubali has written in and said something that i i I definitely want to talk about uh they say the child follows what the mother puts before her remove chips and any sugars and the child should be introduced to a different diet and i just want everybody to remind everybody that you know it's a really good point kubali but there's a ginormous asterisk here 
that, um, you know, we get to where we get with our children eating because of making lots of little individual choices where we thought we were doing the best thing for our child. And I see a lot of times when people have issues that get to this point and there's the child is only eating one thing, the, the parent becomes so afraid that their child is not going to get enough food to stay alive, the parents start to go, well, what will they eat? And then they feed them that. And then you don't want to take that away. And it becomes this thing that is this, you know, habit trail, the little little gerbil on the habit trail where you can't get any other place. And the child is dug in and the parent is terrified that their child won't eat. And if you're, and I know, you know, because I'm a big proponent of this. I, I love a parent taught me that when it's that really crazy time at 3.30 in the afternoon and people are starting to get hungry, you put out vegetables and fruits as a thing. You don't force anybody to eat it. You put it out and see if they'll eat it. And that often in that moment when they're hungry, they will eat things that they don't. But let's remember that for some kids, we're past that. Mm-hmm. That, that we're entrenched. And when, especially when we see kids and she mentions that they're, she'll only eat crunchy things. Um, and you talk a lot about this on the program. Over the years, we've done so many videos on feeding with Dr. Shea and with other ginormous experts in, in the field of autism. So I encourage you to check um, to see in our library all the things that have to do with feeding. Um, but one of the things that I love and I encourage people to get is, uh, I believe it's Jessica Seinfeld. It's uh, Jerry Seinfeld's wife. And she made uh, a cookbook back in the 90s uh, that where she stopped arguing with her kids about eating their vegetables and she just snuck them in. And there's a whole bunch of research in the field of autism that talks about this in a very scientific way. Jessica Seinfeld was not a part of that research, but she was just seeing with her own kids that, for instance, she was making chicken nuggets herself and coating them in a coating that had broccoli in it. And she has a cookbook. You can do this. I and, I, and it plays right into some of the autism research about if your child loves crunchy stuff, then there's, there are very sneaky ways for you to sneak things in. And if you put just a little bit in, they won't notice. Yeah. And then you can up it slightly and until they get to the point where their taste buds can handle it. So I, I if you're looking, you know, and, and especially because you mentioned the crunchy, I just really want to recommend that book has got to be still available. It's probably, you know, uh, in its 18th printing. Um, but it's super clever. I have to be honest that because I was a vegetarian when my son was born, he was already in. The part of his diet. Uh, and I see that my stream is uh, compromised. So I hope you guys can still hear me, but um, it's my husband that acted like a vegetable was something that he would have an allergic reaction to. And what I started doing was making meatloaf and I would grind up carrots and broccoli and put it in instead of the eggs, the cheese and the breadcrumbs into broccoli. And I would bake the meatloaf and I wouldn't put in a lot of it, but just enough, you know, and 
my husband would say, what did you do differently to this meatloaf? It's better than any meatloaf I've ever had. <laughs> and over a period of time, I put in more broccoli and carrots. And, and my husband is somebody who will eat broccoli and carrots now. I realize he's not a kiddo on the spectrum and he doesn't have food selectivity issues. But I'm telling you, you know, if you if you will at least look at that studies have been done on individuals on the autism spectrum where they put like a speck of spinach in chocolate, a speck of it. And if the child doesn't gag and spit it out, great. They maintain that. And then they put a speck and a half in and gradually get to the point where the child is eating a plate of spinach. It happens. It takes Yeah, that's exactly the same concept you're talking about, Shanna. And actually, now that you're saying that, like, I realize over time, we've, even in, in, if you go grocery shopping, you know, like, where things were just like, let's say chips, right? And you mm-hmm. can now buy just veggie chips, or like, and you have so, so many different types of options to buy veggie chips. Or I remember there was a phase where all of us were making kale chips ourselves. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like that that you can do. And it's a very good point you're making that, you know, play with the thing that the child is stuck on. If it's crunchy stuff, actually give them all the good stuff, but in a crunchy format. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just want people to know that there is hope. It's, uh, but I think it's important to recognize that if you've gotten to that point, as Dr. Grampy-Shea said, you really need some help because you have food baggage, your kid has food baggage, and you have baggage together. And if mealtime becomes a battle, that, that's when we get into the, I'm just going to feed them because I know they'll eat them. And then then we get like off kilter and, and you need help. It's not recriminations. You're not a bad parent. Um, your kid is your kid and you've done what you've done to keep them alive, but get yourself some help. Uh, sounds like a pretty, um, decent plan. Okay. We're saying good morning to Nasser too. We're so thrilled that all of you are with us. Okay. Uh, I want to go to another question that we have about potty training, um, that, uh, uh, we've got an eight year old with autism only poop. If I tell him to sit on the toilet, um, and, uh, they're wanting for him to be able to prompt himself. So, uh, suggestions for that, Dr. Graham. Yeah, yeah. And I think you, uh, the best way to go about it is to try to identify some time frames. Uh, so for, he's clearly not recognizing his body uh, messaging to himself. Um, but I think what you could do to help him is kind of identify what is the time frame that he needs to usually go. Like when you tell him to go, I assume, and, and if it's effective, I assume that it's after a meal or sometimes it's in the first thing in the morning. Or if you can try to identify the time frame, um, then it becomes a little bit easier to make it an independent skill because nowadays, of course, with like Apple Watch and all these types of things, we can easily prompt our kids at that, like they can have a watch memo or an alarm that just reminds them, hey, it's time to go. Um, so, or if it's right after a meal, then that's another habit that you can teach the child. Essentially what you're trying to do is to try to find an environmental factor that replaces your reminder. Um, and usually for most people, 
uh, the reminder is a connection with our own body where we realize, oh, I have the need to go. But sometimes with kids that doesn't develop so early. So you kind of have to pair it with other factors. And a lot of kids, uh, they have a need to go right after a meal, or as I said, first thing in the morning or certain time frames. So if you can try to establish a time frame and then just teach the child to pay attention to the stimuli of that time frame. So, you know, give them a, a, a watch reminder or something like that, then it'll start to take you out of the picture. Okay, wonderful. Becky has written in and wants to know, she is a three-year-old on the autism spectrum and she wants to know as they move, as we move towards the fall, she's confused about whether she should continue intensive ABA or have him go to school. This is a three-year-old um, in the fall. Yeah. yeah. So I um, obviously, uh, my perspective is a little bit skewed on this in the sense that I feel that there's very few things out there that are as valuable as intensive ABA good quality intensive ABA. So especially when you are three, um, you are at the perfect age for learning uh, all the things that you need to learn. And intensive, think of intensive ABA as a luxurious education, like a luxurious way to, to learn, because really it's one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's in an environment where there are very few distractions. So you're, it's the highest form of, of education. And so I would absolutely 100% use the early age of my child to give them this intensive tutoring, this intensive uh, kind of education, this, uh, you know, put, filling their brain with as much as I possibly can um, before I do anything else. Because let me tell you, when, when the child becomes seven, there are, first of all, a lot of other things that you have to teach the child. Um, and secondly, uh, it, you no longer have the, the, the privilege of uh, being able to focus and do just pure ABAs, kind of like your, the child's life. Now you have academics and lots of other adaptive skills that come in and the, you know, in most states you are uh, required to place your child in school and so on and so forth. But when your child is three, uh, you have all the time that you want. And that is the perfect time to try to teach the child as much as you can. There is no question that any individual will learn faster and more when it's in a uh, environment that is distraction-free and when it's one-to-one -one and when it's a, a, a course of study that is meant for the child only. In school, uh, the child is exposed to education and social, but a lot of times our kids are not even, uh, they don't have enough skills yet to benefit from the social aspect of things. So the ideal situation in my mind is to do a lot of, uh, of work, ABA work with a child at age three, even at age four, 
so that when they are like five and you kind of have to go to school, the child is ready. They are able, they have more skills and now they're able to pay better attention and uh, interact with other kids and benefit from the school environment. At three, I think your focus should be on just straight teaching of skills. And, you know, I feel very passionate about this, Dr. Grant Bichet. Um, yes. You know, I remember what it was like to have a three-year-old on the spectrum and have the school pressuring me to bring him to school. I remember exactly what that felt like. And I'm a former teacher. Uh, it wasn't my first IEP. I had sat on the other side of the IEP table. But it feels when they're there and telling you, if you want to do what's best for your child, you need to bring them to school. Um, and I love that Dr. Grand Pichet is a professional and she, you know, puts it in very professional parlance, but I'm not, a, a, you know, a, an ABA professional. So I'm just going to put it in mom parlance and say with love, if your child is three, that you should be fighting for a 40 hour program for ABA and you should not let anybody get in your way of doing that. And, and you should put everything that you can into that and everything else should be on a back burner because you will never have this opportunity again. And insurance, if you live in the United States, chances are that insurance will pay for it. And you will never have that opportunity again when your child's mind is as, as open to learning as it is when they're three and they don't have other demands on their schedule. It is, you have won the lottery. You have a, you have a diagnosis. And if you're living in the United States, you have won the lottery. Don't miss picking up the ticket. Um, school will be there when your child is four, school will be there when your child is five, but that ability to do a 40 hour ABA program and have it be funded will not. And every single study has shown very clearly that the best hope for your child to learn as many things as possible is intensive ABA, good quality ABA. So fight for all of those things. And, and I, I've said this to parents ever since we saw what we got. And, and I've never had a parent tell me, oh my gosh, Shannon, you told us to go do intensive ABA and we did. And I'm sorry. I wish we hadn't. Not once, not ever. I have had parents come back to me and say, oh my gosh, you told me to do this. You told me to act like my house was on fire. I didn't listen and I regret it every day of my life. I've had that happen way too many times. So I'm just going to be honest and tell you, don't have those regrets. Run, don't walk. Um, join all of us. We'll help you to, to fight for your child getting what they need. It's hard right now because of COVID and school is sometimes the easy answer, but it's not about the easy answer. It's about what's most effective for your child. And unfortunately at three, it's not school. It's not what they're doing at school for all the reasons that Dr. Jackson stated. Uh, AC says, can you do an interview with Lori Berkner, the queen of children's music? I don't know if Dr. Grampy Shea knows this, but on Monday we had Twinkle on the show. Uh, mm -hmm. They call her the Lady Gaga of children's music. Uh, <laughs> she has a huge following of individuals who are on the autism spectrum. I don't know Lori Berkner, but please have her write into us, connect us. Uh, we'll, we'll entertain Lori Berkner on it. It was so much fun to have Twinkle with us. It's not every day that I get to interview Twinkle uh, and check out Twinkle Time. She was a gas, man. And she does some really fun videos about accepting and loving yourself for who you are. She's got a great video called Mask It Up. If your kiddo's having trouble wearing a mask, put on Twinkle Time with a little mask it up. I, said, awesome. she, I said she was like a cross between 
uh, Lady Gaga and Dee Dee Doodle. And if you don't have kids from a certain area, then you won't know who Dee Dee Doodle is. But the Doodle Bops, when my kid was little, I was I was all about the Doodle Bops with him. Uh, too much fun. Uh, okay, Stan wants to know, I have a four-year-old diagnosed with autism who has dark circles underneath his eyes. Is it worth it to try the gluten-free, casein-free diet? Are we risking anything by trying it? No. Please try the diet. And I, there's, every time I see a child and I see the dark rings under his or her eyes, I will immediately uh, suggest to the parents that they should try the casein free right away. Usually the dark rings are as a result of milk. Uh, and so that's kind of a really, really pretty easy one, honestly, to eliminate from the child's diet. A lot of parents say, what about calcium? How am I going to get my child to have calcium? And I highly recommend, uh, there's numerous other types of milk now available, which is so nice for parents now. Um, and of course, if you can get your child to have, let's say, uh, if it's a girl, you can have soy milk. Uh, if it's a boy, there is always almond milk. I only drink almond milk. Um, and of course, now they have almond coconut and they have oat milk and there's like a million different types of milks. And, and I, the interesting thing is they all provide more calcium than, than dairy. And um, casein is the protein that's in dairy. So uh, you want to try to avoid that. Um, that's the one that makes a huge difference, I think, on the on the rings of the dark rings on the eyes. And actually what it does, it's not just even about that. That's a sign that your child is having a, a problems digesting that. So when you get the child off of casein and gluten, which is just a little bit harder, but very worth trying, very, very worth trying, especially these days when everyone has some sort of gastrointestinal issue. Gluten is the one that most people see in the form of bloating their child is bloated or constipated or has di diarrhea, that it tends to be more a gluten reaction. And if you can actually work with a dietitian and identify how to do this correctly and keep your child, you will see the effect of getting off casein within a week. You'll see the effect of getting off um, gluten more like a month. So it uh, it's probably makes sense to do one before the other. Um, and to, so that you can see those wonderful things happening. Children, when they get off of casein, a lot of times, a lot of times, parents come back to me and say, oh my God, it's like he woke up and all of a sudden he's learning so much more and he's so much more aware. Um, children who get off of gluten, it's more of a gradual type of thing. It's not as acute, but it is major. Like, the child sleeps better, the child digests their food better, um, has, you know, more regular bowel movements, not no more pain. There's a lot of things like that. So um, I do recommend the diets and um, I think it's important to try. Wonderful. We're, we're pretty much out of time here. Um, I, I promised that I was going to let people know that today um, it's already started, but um, that I wanted to encourage people 
to, as you leave the program today, if you've got time to go over to the live hearings for the IACC, they're having their uh, quarterly meeting right now. This is the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee. They This first hour that they've just done, they were doing the introductions, but they're going to start to move into some of the topics. This is something that I encourage people, if you've got the time to go and do, um, I'm looking to see if I have a link that you guys can go to, but I think you can just go, if you type into Google, IACC, and you can put in hearings or meetings. It is happening live right now. It is a free live stream, and you can. And they're, to part of, they're part Sorry? of the national. They're part of the National Institutes of Mental Health. So if you can't uh, look for IAC, you can always go on the National Institutes website as well. I think it's really worthwhile to check out what they're talking about. They're going to be talking today for the next couple of hours and then talking again tomorrow. Uh, and then we'll try to do a better job of telling you when you, 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 there's a deadline that you have to write in before their next meeting, which I believe is in late September, early October. Um, the, they will read the comments that people wrote in, uh, the deadline for the comments to be a part of this one were July 2nd. They only ever get a handful of them, which makes me slightly twitchy. Uh, so if you have things that you want them to be talking about, start composing your letter because there will be another opportunity for those to be read in September and October. Uh, I want to remind all of you that we'll be back tomorrow with Bonnie Yates, special education attorney. You won't want to miss that. And then we have a research update coming up on Friday's show. But thank Dr. Grampichet. Until then, uh, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye.